and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Sydney Powell, CEO and co-founder at Maple Finance. Syrup Sid, it's great to have you on. <laughs> hey, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. So let's start. We always like to start pre-crypto with a little quick introduction. Can you walk us through your background before you, you, you fell down the rabbit hole? Yeah, sure. So prior to crypto, I was working in banking. So I used to do uh, debt capital markets. Uh, so this was structured finance and advisory uh, with a particular focus on securitization. So in effect, we were helping lending companies to borrow through banks and debt capital markets so that they had the funds to give loans out to their customers. Uh, then after that, I went from deal side to client side because I, I really want to see what it was like to run a business. And so going and seeing the other side of the coin where you're a company trying to use finance from banks or from debt capital markets to grow really gave me a, a, a bigger uh, a bigger picture and a better understanding of how business works because we had to project manage uh, getting the right data for reporting, uh, working with the credit team, working with the collections team. So just understanding all the aspects of running a lending business, everything from sourcing you know the finance that we needed to operate to how they originate loans to how they service and, and collect on them. So that, that was a very interesting stage. And that was actually what prompted me to start thinking about how we could use smart contracts uh, to, you know, to, to, to provide infrastructure to run a lending business. And that was kind of the origin of Maple. And that was actually where I, I met my co-founder, Joe, as well. And so what, what, yeah, so like what initially drew you into crypto? What was really the problem that you saw and why, why start Maple and, and why do it in DeFi? Yeah. So, what drew us into crypto was was this idea of smart contracts. So we didn't come into it um, by initially being, you know, having our attention captured by Bitcoin. It was actually the idea that you had uh, programmable financial contracts. So you could do a debt agreement where you could set conditions of default or a maturity or the interest rate. And so we actually started researching that back in 2018. But the pain point was I was running a debt facility internally at a company and so I had to you know, manage the relationship with a bank, uh, as well as you also have to pay to have like a trustee, a custodian, legal docs are created manually, and everything is effectively governed by a set of you know, legal obligations and manual processes that are described in paper legal documents. And so when I first started learning that there was a way to do this electronically and the possibility that we could use software and use that to replace hundreds of pages of legal documents that we had, I was immediately interested by that. And so from 2018, I started reading all of the white papers, anyone who was talking about doing securitization on chain, loans on chain, derivatives on chain, any of that kind of stuff. So it was I was picking up a lot of the white papers that were from the ICO boom, and then started reaching out and speaking to lawyers to see whether anyone was doing this in a way that we were familiar with, which was the idea of could we do securitization on chain? 
but that was a began us on a really long journey where early 2019 i'm writing a white paper and trying to just conceptualize my idea of what it would look like to do you know could you do senior debt or mes debt or junior debt on chain and have it in tradable tokens uh but that was so early back then that DeFi wasn't really accepted as a thing and so we wrote this prototype white paper at the start of 2019 but then we had to go and start attending you know ethereum and web3 meetups just to try and meet people who knew what they were doing from a coding perspective and so we plowed our own savings into uh, building a basic proof of concept back in 2019 and that looked different to what maple does now because it was just plugging in like a, the idea of a yield generating asset with senior mes and junior debt and having that be represented as tokens on chain so it's still a leap ahead of anything that went before but the ecosystem you know wasn't developed enough for this to be a viable product so it was like it was like having an e-commerce startup in the 80s like there was just nothing to do and uh and no ecosystem of of customers or market to distribute the product in so how far away do you think we are from that i mean like you know we're still oh you know yeah it sounds like you think we're still a ways away. So where, where, yeah. when are we getting there? And also, what are your thoughts broadly on security tokens and, and where we're at and, and you know, in the cycle? Because it's actually something, you know, obviously we saw the KKR Avalanche announcement. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yeah, I did. A few days ago. And it's starting to finally, it feels like finally starting to see a little bit of momentum there. So curious as to your thoughts on that market broadly. Yeah. Yeah, well... On the question of where where are we at at the moment and are we too soon? We'll keep it like it's it's very hard to predict when uh, you know when it will be widely accepted. And certainly looking ahead from two years ago, so very early 2020, uh, I felt you know I I felt like it was a viable product, but there were no customers there for it. So the, you know the the market was kind of proving me wrong. But it caught up super quickly. So from then, I could definitely not have predicted DeFi summer. And then suddenly there were tokens everywhere. And there was, you know, DeFi, DeFi protocols, yield farming, and suddenly institutions or actually funds were being set up specifically for yield within DeFi. So that went way ahead of my expectations of how fast it was going to catch up. What we're still missing, though, is a couple of things. So any large institution, say above $10 billion that you talk to, is going to say, well, we need a qualified custodian to be able to participate. Like they're going to have to hold our assets. And that's a very uh, concentrated market at the moment in crypto assets. Like Fidelity is doing some stuff. There's Anchorage. Then there are what I think are kind of the, you know, the more interesting technical solutions, which are Copper and Fireblocks and Credo, which are offering a way where you can have, you know, maybe a custodian is like one signatory on a wallet. But that's that's caught up. So I think what's missing is qualified institutional custodians, decent on and off ramps, so that large institutions who can't hold stable coins can just send fiat to an address or to to a bank account, and then have it automatically be deposited into a smart contract for them. Like those are those are the two biggest blockers I see at the moment, and that stop the larger institutions from coming in. What about regulatory clarity? Because that's something that I hear, obviously. Yeah. You know, you know, we we talk to very similar folks, and so we have a lot of the yeah. same conversations. So, yeah, totally agreed yeah. on the first few points. The the other piece that I hear often is just like, we just like I heard this morning actually from somebody, which is like, we don't want to be trading things, and the SEC comes after us for like trading unregistered securities or something. So, I'm curious, have you heard that as well, or? 
Um, yeah, many times, many, many times. So that is just, so the, the SEC's view is that they have given clarity. Almost all these things are securities. The, uh, despite what they say, the institutions who are supposed to be consumers of this uh, regulatory position do not feel that there is sufficient clarity. So they are not necessarily of the view that they are securities, but they're not sure enough that they are not securities. And then the fact that some of them are traded on exchanges like Coinbase, which is, is, is going through its own form of the Howey test in deciding that something is not a security and therefore it can be listed, that hasn't been persuasive for some of the some of the uh, the funds that want to either purchase the stuff or trade the stuff. So you'll have lawyers who will advise projects and as well as funds that something is not a security, but you you'll have internal teams who say that they do not feel there's sufficient clarity on one whether something is or isn't a security, but also the consequences if they are trading it. And that varies so much that you will have you could have one institution that might be five or ten billion in assets under management that will happily trade it. And you'll have another one that talks to different lawyers and will choose not to trade it, but has exactly the same characteristics as a firm. Maybe they do market making activity. They have roughly the same AUM. Does it, but does it matter? Because a lot of the folks that yeah. are trading it are prop versus it seems yeah. to me that, that for the most part, at least large mm. US funds that have external capital are not trading LP capital yet. Do you disagree with that broadly, or are you on the same page? No, I, I think I think that's I think that's broadly correct. So a lot of the funds who are trading it with LP capital are typically offshore, and I'd say you're right that most of the ones who are U.S. based who are trading it are probably doing so with prop capital. And so let's get into let's not let's not derail here. I <laughs> want to get into Maple. I want to get into the syrup. Yeah. So you know the you know uh, what is yeah. Maple. How is it different from its competitors and who are you guys servicing? Yeah. So the way, the way to conceptualize Maple is we built, uh, we built a platform and a set of infrastructure to run a lending business that could compete with credit funds. So when you're like the people who are participating on Maple to actually unpack that, you would have lenders. These are going to be institutions who want to deposit into a pool. A pool is a wallet that is on chain. It's kind of like having a balance sheet or something close to a credit fund, but housed on chain. And so it has a manager, but what's different is the manager is not custodying those assets. They're just approving loans that go out of them towards institutional borrowers. And then the third party is, of course, the institutional borrower. So the way that Maple works is uh, that manager, we call them a delegate, spins up a pool on chain. Institutions, family offices, uh, ultra high net worths will deposit into that pool. And then the delegate is going to approve loans, which are recorded on chain out to institutional borrowers. These are typically market makers, but uh, in our roadmap, we've got fintechs, we've also got uh, miners as well. But it's institutional borrowers who are using it for corporate purposes. And so, how to differentiate Maple from other, uh, other kind of Web2? Uh, concepts here is we're not the lender. And so we set up a framework kind of like Shopify. So uh, Shopify gave you the tools to run an e-commerce business. We give you the tools to run a lending business. So the kind of functions that are really important and that are provided by the software are gathering capital, originating loans, collecting repayments on those loans, passing them back to people who deposited in the pool, and then 
reporting and visibility on the health of all those loans. So that's the product that we're providing. And the key consumer is a lending company that wants to run one of those pools and uh, perform underwriting on institutional borrowers. So in that way, that company would really be competing with the likes of a Fortress Group or any of the larger sort of credit funds lending into the mid-market space. And so how does the delegate get compensated? So they'll take... uh, so they the the maple service they're using is like a bundle for them so when they set up a pool they're taking compensation in the form of two streams so they'll take uh 33 basis points annualized or another number that they can set on origination volume of loans so think of this like there's a one percent annualized fee that borrowers pay one third of that goes to the delegate two thirds of it go to the maple treasury and then when borrowers pay interest, the delegate is by default taking about 10% of that interest. So if a borrower pays $100 of interest, $10 of that will go to the delegate as like an ongoing fee for servicing the book. And then a portion of the fee in our new iteration of Maple will go to the treasury as like a platform fee for use and continued operation of the uh, of the protocol itself. And so what are the what are yields looking like on Maple now versus if you go through like a CFI lender within crypto? Like what, what are, or, mm. you know, how, how, what's the delta between, you know, rates? Yeah, it's um, just actually just before I go into that, one of the other things to note about the delegates, so they have to put some of their own funds into this subordinated reserve called cover. And so that's just a little bit of a difference from what you've seen before in TradFi, but it's, it's, an alignment of incentives by having a delegate put skin in the game so that you don't end up with a delegate who just underwrites a whole heap of shoddy quality loans, you know, like like what occurred during the GFC where you had people originating loans and then getting them off their balance sheet uh, with no residual exposure to them. So this is just how we, we avoid that. Rates in crypto. So before they were much wider. So going back six months ago, they were much wider than uh, equi- you know, equivalent trad by spread. So you had treasuries near zero, and then you had crypto. Crypto yields were still on underlying loans, you know, eight to thirteen percent, call it APY. Uh, and then what happened is treasuries went wider, but uh, volume through exchanges, which is where a lot of the a lot of the revenue for liquidity providers like market makers comes from. So that volume on exchange declined, and that meant that there was less appetite from them to to borrow. And so what we saw then was that the spread between uh, on-chain rates, let's call them digital asset rates, and TradFi compressed, and it's been in a state where it's probably still about 600 to 700 points wider, but this is in from like, you know, 900 points previously. What about between, to a thousand points previously? What about CFI versus DeFi? So I mean, like you know, if you go to you know, you know, take like a Nexo for example, hmm. right? Or take you know, obviously you know, or BlockFi even as an example. I know they're still doing they're, they're yeah. still doing some lending. So what's the difference between those folks versus versus a Maple, for example? So it's different structure. So in each of those cases, so a CFI lender. Um, using either of those either of those names, like a, a BlockFi or a Nexo, is more of a it's more the case that when you deposit, you are lending to them. And so it's like a bank. So the bank borrows at three percent 
lends out at 6%, keeps a 3% spread. And that covers, that covers like loan loss. So provision for uh, bad and doubtful debts, as well as operating expenses. And so in, in the case of CFI lenders, you are lending to the CFI lender and then they are lending it out at a higher rate, but they are effectively your borrower. You're their creditor. And then they use the spread to cover operations and allowance for bad and doubtful debts. And whereas on Maple, it is more of a pass-through structure in the pool. So you're not, your assets are not custodied by the manager or the delegate running that pool. And so as long as a borrower repays, you're going to get your funds back. Uh, it's not commingled with the other parts of their business. What's happening, though, is that it's more of a pass-through structure. So a borrower pays back $100 of interest. What happens is that you'll get the $100 of interest less the $10 for the delegate. And then you, so you keep the rest of that, uh, you keep the rest of that interest payment. Whereas if it was the other model, then the borrower would pay back $100 of interest to the delegate. The delegate is going to keep most of it for uh, accounting for potential losses, as well as their operating expenses, and then pay you the rest. But the rest is interest that you are receiving from the delegate because you lent to them. So that's not the way it works on Maple. So that's one of the key differences is that more interest is passed back through to the to the depositor, and that's why rates are a bit higher on the platform than they would be in CFI. What about collateral requirements and differences there? Yeah, so the so Maple offers both types of products. So we have call it more shorter dated unsecured debt, which is loans to market makers. And so that's because market makers borrow, let's say they borrow two, two sides of a currency pair. So they borrow BTC, they borrow uh, USDC or Tether. They go and take that on a centralized exchange and they're trading both sides of the pair. So they have working cap, they're using it as working capital. It's not a long-term investment and they can instantly or you know within 48 hours unwind their trading positions and repay the loans if they need. So it's a fairly liquid loan and it's very short dated. It might be 30 days, might be 60 or 90 days. But those loans are unsecured and that's consistent. So CFI was doing a lot of this lending. It had some negative credit performance of those books and so it tightened up. So CFI went to like a higher collateralization ratio and was just doing less business across the board. Some of them have started doing uncollateralized loans again, but it's a smaller business than it was for them. So we've continued, we've continued doing that business Maple's credit book performed very well through Q2. So there was a, on 900 million outstanding loans at the start of June, there was only a single default of $10 million. This sort of outperformed all the major CFI providers. Uh, but the other product we're introducing is going to be longer dated, more secured credit. So this could be corporate loans to miners. And then beyond that, we'll also be introducing corporate loans to fintechs. So that'll be secured by an off-chain, so first ranking uh, lien on the corporate assets as well as some reserve of on-chain, so Bitcoin, collateral. So it's different to an over-collateralized loan the way a lot of people are familiar with it in digital assets. Um, but it's, uh, it is a secured loan rather than unsecured working capital. So let's, two questions actually. First is on miners. So if you're, yeah. if you're, if you're using, let's say, mining equipment as collateral, how are you, how is that being underwritten? Is there like, a mm. physical contract that's written as well? Like, how does it actually work? Yeah. Yeah, so in all cases, Maple Loans have a physical loan contract. Got it, and okay. so 
all of the loans are recourse. So if a borrower doesn't repay, it's not like they suffer a reputational hit. They get taken to bankruptcy court and they get wound yeah. up uh, or restructured in some other way. So, you know, it's uh, if they don't repay a loan, it's existent- it's an existential threat to their business. But what happens when you're doing a minor loan? So some people have done non-recourse loans to the ASICs. And what happens is if Bitcoin goes into a trough, then the miners will just hand back the ASICs and the loan was non-recourse. So what they now say is, well, those ASICs are underwater. We don't want to carry the cost of them. It's not profitable to keep mining. So they hand the ASICs back to the creditor. So what's happening in the loans that will be done on Maple is it's it's like whole of business security. So you're taking security over not just the ASICs, but also the transformers, any warehousing, any land, if they own the land. And then you're also doing an account control deed over the Bitcoin so that mine Bitcoin can be swept because it's controlled, you know, it's held in a jointly controlled account with a custodian. So it's a, it's a much tighter security package than just taking ASICs, whose value tends to actually fluctuate at a higher beta than Bitcoin. And what what's the collateralization requirement on that? Is it like 100% yeah. or...? Uh, it'd be well, it'd be over hundred percent because it'd be a sixty. Okay. It'd be a target sixty percent LTV. But remember that when they set that LTV, they're going to handicap the value of the assets because they're going to treat it not like its current market value, but they're going to treat it like distressed value. So, what are those miners worth um, if they're beaten up and it's bottom of cycle? What's the actual realizable value on the transformers and the power assets? So you're not just taking it at kind of this potentially h- higher value. It's, you're going a pretty conservative LTV. And is, is, are, are you ever requiring more collateral? Is that a situation that could happen, right? So if if everything crashes and goes to shit and we start to go towards that worst case scenario, are you yeah. ever going to, to, to require, or, or, or I guess, could the delegate require that somebody post more collateral? Yeah, the, so the delegate could adjust but if you look at the, like the nature of the collateral is that you've already got this secured lien over the assets of the corporate. So for the borrower to post more collateral, that's going to have to be in the form of digital assets. So the delegate could have the ability to ask for more. Um, but remember that what they're trying to do is set the package securely enough. So the overall value that they're assigning to the worth of the business, they're trying to set that conservatively enough and uh, provide a low enough amount of debt that they're in a good position, even if you do hit a trough. Because ideally, if you're factoring that in, then when you hit that worst case scenario, you've kind of already accounted for that in your budgeting and, and the handicap level. You don't want to you don't want to have to go back, you know, go back to the well and ask for more at that stage because they're going to be in a point of distress. It's going to be very hard for them to to either provide more hard assets or digital assets. And how That's do you? That's what we found. I, I was sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, that's that's right. I was just going to say that's that's what people who wrote mining loans right. prior to you know March April found. Like when they went back and had to ask for more collateral, a lot of those miners um, were experiencing distress by that stage. And so, other question is, how do the delegates go about assessing the creditworthiness of borrowers? Yeah, so there's two different ways. So, but in each way, it reflects a relatively tradfi approach. So. One of the things you're not doing is you're not using the blockchain for credit risk assessment. You're using the blockchain for management of capital, settlement of loans, and collection of repayments. It's just 10x better for that than people sending money manually 
or having to rely on the banking system to do that. What you're, u- what you're using to underwrite borrowers is, for the market makers, a fairly conventional process. So it's begin with KYC, interview management, have them sign an NDA, uh, get their most recent ordered financials, get their monthly management accounts. So you're looking at their balance sheet. You're seeing what their equity position is. You're seeing how much profit they generate and can is this profit sufficient to service their interest payments many times over. And then you're also trying to understand the nature of the like the OPSEC at the business. So do they use a custody solution? What do they use? How sophisticated are their operations? And one of the key things is you're looking to make sure they're market neutral. You don't want to be lending to a fund of the type of like 3AC, where instead they were taking a leveraged long or short position on the market. You instead just want to lend to somebody who's printing money, you know, day in, day out. They don't really have down days because their business is supplying liquidity. So that's on the market maker side. On the miner side, you're you're also doing an oper- like a site visit. So you're doing an operational assessment of visiting their business, seeing how well set up uh, all the the power infrastructure is. You're looking at their electricity purchasing, power purchasing agreements, and whether these are locked in prices, because sometimes you might find that prices are actually uncapped for certain parts of the year. And that if they go, you know, if the prices rise, then, then the, you know, the miner might be in financial distress. So you're looking at power agreements, quality of the infrastructure they have on site, you're meeting management, you know, making sure that they know what they know what they're doing. And then you're looking at any longer term obligations, like do they have deposits down to purchase equipment in six months that is going to require even more cash from them? Have they committed to put down a substantial deposit on their power agreement to lock that in for two or three years or five years? And so that's all on the borrower side, right? So there's a ton of diligence that's happening to make to assess the credit worthiness of the borrower. All the borrowers are KYC, they're institutional or they're a minor on the lender side, anyone can participate in, in a maple pool. Is that correct? Like any, any person who has capital on chain could, could provide money and to, to put money into one of these pools and earn interest. Yeah. So there's, there's two types of pools. So we've got the uh, open pools where anyone who's got an address on chain can provide uh, dollars into those pools, uh, but they need to pass a TRM labs screen. So we run this over addresses that are depositing to the pools and it will block any addresses that have been sanctioned. Um, so recent example being tornado crap, tornado cash. Uh, then you have the, uh, does tight, that happen on the front end level or the protocol level? That's the front. That's the front end level. You can't, okay. you can't block on the protocol level without doing a different, a change in the smart contracts. So right. that change is, so we have uh, a second level, which is tighter at the protocol level. So you got two layers of protection, front end, which is TRM labs, which will block in, block an address. And then you've got protocol level, which is more tightly secured. And this would be, you can only deposit to a pool if your address has been whitelisted. So that is an additional layer, which might be suitable if the delegate only wants to deal with a few counterparties or, um, you know, wants to maintain or only wants to put their own funds in or wants to maintain just very strict control over who's able to deposit. All right. So let's, let's pivot. And let's talk about, you know, you guys started on ETH, you're now on Solana. Yeah. So why those two chains uh, specifically, yeah. you know, and, and, and what, what, what other demand are you seeing and how do you view that changing in the future? Yeah, so we started on ETH. ETH was the most natural decision uh, because 
if you're looking at building something, you need to find, you know, you want to build a house, you need to find people who can actually build the house. And so we, uh, or the, the widest set of developer talent is those who could build on Ethereum. Uh, it was also the best market to launch a product where we would have distribution, as in, you know, borrowers would, could take down loans um, on the Ethereum chain. And there was a large enough amount of value sitting on the Ethereum chain that could come in and deposit into the pools. And then it had the most developed on and off ramps. So you have firms like Circle who can issue USDC on there, but it's, it's much easier to interact with a protocol on the Ethereum chain. Then you kind of look at, you kind of look at the development of the alternative layer one set and late in 2021, you had uh, Solana started to emerge as well as Avalanche, but other, other alt ones started to come about. And so we were experiencing some complaints from customers about gas fees and the speed of the network on Ethereum. And so what we started to look at was, was there a way to address this either through a scaling solution or using an alternative L1? And then at the, at the time, we could see the growth of the growth of value occurring on Solana, as well as a ton of people coming from like TradFi backgrounds who decided, no, I'm going to bypass building on Ethereum and instead I'm going to go straight to building a financial product on Solana. So that was really interesting to us and it stuck out. And what we could see as we did more research into Solana was that because of its different, you know, its different architecture, you know, it can run, without getting into the technicalities, it can run parallel processing. So it's a chain that's leveraged to volume and scalability, and that will also, you know, improve performance as hardware improves as well. And so we looked at that, we saw a good ecosystem, interesting differentiated uh, technology stack, and, uh, you know, good amount of, uh, of some of our existing partners who are already using it. So we actually found a team that we're able to buy, uh, which was the Avari team that was building something similar to Maple there. But that just meant that we were able to get to market, you know, probably six or nine months ahead of what it would have taken us to go and hire our own engineering expertise and start building out from there. And so we've got Maple Solana. It's done probably cumulatively over about 150 million in originations on there since we launched at the end of May. And we had Genesis and we have Credora currently running pool on there. And so what percentage of volume is on ETH first soul right now? And is that surprising to you? Uh, it's it's a 90-10 split. So that volume at the moment is not too surprising. Uh, if uh, if Solana's trajectory had continued from where it was last year, then I think that I think there'd be a higher proportion on Solana. Uh, but it's remained pretty steady. And I think you know what I am what I'm interested in is not having a carbon copy of the Maple Protocol on Solana uh, that is the same or cannibalizes the usage that's on Ethereum. So instead, what we want is for a Solana, Maple on Solana to kind of evolve with either a slightly differentiated use case or differentiated customer segment. So what some of the things we've experimented with, or not experimented with, but that we've developed to differentiate it, are we're doing, we've done open term loans on Solana. And so this is different to what we have on Ethereum, which is sticking with fixed term loans. Open term loans mimic what is being done in, in uh, CeFi, where you as a lender can call back the loan with a couple of days notice. And this means that it's easy for you to then match the duration of your loan book with the duration of your deposits. Because if somebody requests that they be able to withdraw their funds from a pool, 
on Maple, the, the delegate can just ask one of the borrowers to repay the loan within a couple of days, and then they have the funds available. So it helps with asset liability matching. But uh, the other thing, the other thing we're interested in looking at is like how do things like the Solana mobile stack evolve, or what does it mean that Helium is now building on Solana? Because we want to find differentiated use cases versus just lending to the same market makers as we do on Ethereum. Got to lend to the helium miners. They're not making very much money right now, though, unfortunately. No, no, I heard that. That's <laughs> we held <laughs> off that. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on permissioned DeFi, and how do we go about attracting traditional institutions to DeFi? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because you have kind of this idea of permission DeFi. Like permission DeFi is the idea that you would have uh, only KYC participants going into pools. And so we've seen appetite for it. We provided the permissioned pools to cater to that appetite, where you had firms who wanted tighter controls over who could go into the pools. Uh, but it hasn't become widely accepted because there is still apprehension around other risks like smart contract risk, liquidity, that prevent some of those institutions from actually participating in permission DeFi. But it, what is interesting is that there is a general acceptance that more institution, more ins institutional participation will come and that it will probably come to this permission segment of products. So, and you've seen, you've seen a number of firms start offering versions of these products of the, their original permissionless product product in a permission form. So Aave Arc compounds new uh, borrow product is, um, you know, going after the same market. So, I think it has a future. I think DeFi will evolve along two lines where you have permissionless DeFi and permissioned DeFi. And so I had a question. I'm blanking on what the question was. The <laughs> let's the <laughs> I mean it's 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 an interesting idea to me. Oh, oh, this is my question. Sorry to, to get to yeah, it. Yeah, so we talked sure. a lot about fi financial risk, but I think you brought up a good point, mm -hmm. which was on the smart contract risk side. So how do you think about smart contract risk and how do you how do you get folks to be comfortable with on-chain related risks? And also like how often do you have to do new smart contract and security audits? Like how, how, how frequently are you updating that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the, I think time in the market helps people get comfortable with smart contract risks. So if you look at Maple, uh, there is a higher risk being, the first depositor into a protocol that's just launched is maybe live for less than a month. But in Maple's case, it's been live now for over 15 months and it's had more than $1.7 billion pass through the protocol. So it's done 1.7 billion in loans to date. Over 1.4 billion has been repaid. And so, you know, it, it's relatively battle tested. So that's smart contract risk. The odds that there is a bug that has not been found uh, or has not been exploited, you know, exponentially smaller than they were when it first launched. But the other ways that you minimize it are, and Compound's done this in V3, you don't have mixed asset pools. So you have put on Maple, you can only deposit USDC into a pool. You can't deposit USDC and wrap ETH and wrap Bitcoin, which would be constantly fluctuating in value relative to each other, because that's how a lot of exploits happen. So you have one deposit, you have a lock on deposits. So you can't get in and get out in the same transaction and that prevents flash loans. And then in Maple's case, the funds aren't sitting in the protocol most of the time because what happens is, Josh, you deposit $100 million. 
well, that $100 million gets lent out in loans. So it's not sitting as cash in the, uh, in the pool to attract, you know, to attract um, unwanted attention. So those are some of the ways that you can mitigate it from a risk perspective. But then from an aud- audits are the best audits are the best tool for this. And so you would get an audit every time you're launching a new version of your code. So we get an audit. We actually get multiple audits every time we do a new code release um, of smart contracts. So we have providers like Trailer Bits that we have on Retainer. You know, we've also used QuantStamp, PexShield. So uh, we'll typically get two audits. Then we run a bug bounty program. So we have this in place with Immunify, and this ensures that there are people who are constantly incentivized to try and find and report any issues they find. And then we've run Code Arena as well, which is like a contest uh, to see if you can see if you can break the protocol and identify any issues with it. Again, it's prize based. So you take you take several uh, several different approaches to try and reduce the risk there. And how often are you actually pushing code then? Because it sounds like there's a lot that goes in from an from an audit perspective. So like like we ship updates every week, right? It sounds like that's yeah. not possible here. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, you're, you're quite right. So on your front end, we'll do releases every two weeks, yeah. which is like a sprint. Um, but that's you know tweaking copy on the website. That is updating the user experience. That is front end related. At a protocol level, you move much slower because you've got large amounts of money flowing through it, and uh, and the way that it you know the way that Ethereum smart contracts work, you are effectively launching a new version of the protocol whenever you do this. So we would do a major update maybe every six or nine months, okay. and then our most recent releases were more like modular pieces. So where Maple's going, we had a monolithic smart contract before, which was pools. And this was like, it was like having the space station, but in one piece. What we're doing now is we're launching V2, which is like sending up a version of the space station, but where you can break pieces off and replace them over time. So it's going to be more modular where you can like snap off a component of Maple and then add another one that is, you know, an updated version or does something differently, whether it's a different way to liquidate collateral or it's a different way to uh, to process withdrawals from the pool. But that'll just mean that we're able to do improvements in a much more iterative and faster way. So it's probably an evolution in smart contracts. But otherwise, doing development with smart contracts is kind of like working with hard assets. It's kind of like designing a car. And so how does the implosion, uh, implosion of CFI lenders impact your business? You know, obviously we've seen... Uh, you know, publicly the struggles of, of a number of different lenders, don't need to name names, but you know, w- what, what if any impact mm-hmm. that have on you guys? Yeah. So the, I mean, the impact, the impact was macro in that everyone went risk off. So we had a number of parties who were depositing in pools who decided that they wanted to see that prove out that they could get their funds back. So they did that. And then now they're kind of at the stage where they're considering redeployment of capital. So capital across the lending space shrunk. So supply side constraint for anyone who is in the lending business. And then there are also similar fears of contagion. So driven by the loan book performance of some of those CFI players, there are concerns about contagion where people felt like, you know, you might've had other borrowers might've had links to 3AC and therefore they were very cautious about you know, perceived risk of default among some of the borrowers. That's now relaxed. And so people are starting to get back into the market. Uh, but what happened was we saw a real pullback in supply 
So borrowers were willing to borrow at higher rates. So we saw we were able to get loans out at a higher rate, reprice the book and launch a new pool that was priced, you know, 10% plus. So that was kind of good for lenders who stayed in the market because they saw a good performance in the maple pools and they got a pricing pickup. But uh, yeah, I I suppose the structural side is that we still hadn't seen a lot of lending volumes come back. So a lot of the CFI players are still pretty conservative. And so what we've been able to do it, I guess, with Maple is start to get a larger chunk of, uh, of market share. And that's something we want to exploit. So the way I see it, a lot of the problems that occurred within the CFI space so can boil down to two things. So lack of transparency. You didn't know who the borrowers were. You didn't know how they were performing. And the custodial aspect of being with a CFI provider, even if you were just depositing your funds to be held on custody and you didn't want yield and you didn't expect that they would be lent out, your funds were co-mingled with the other risks of the business. So with a maple pool, at least, your funds are not custodially held. So when you put it in a pool, even if the delegate running the pool were to experience financial distress or difficulty, as long as the other, as long as the borrowers in that pool pay it back, the smart contract will still process your withdrawal. So you're not, you know, you don't have the counterparty risk of a CFI lender. And then the other aspect is all of the loans in the pool are always transparent. So you can always see who all the borrowers are. You never wake up one morning and find surprise. There was actually a really large borrower who defaulted and you had no idea they were even in there. And you can see that in real time. So if you go on app.maple.finance, you can see who all the borrowers are, that they've repaid, that the cash is sitting in the pool. You can see when the cash comes in as well as when other people make withdrawals. So I think over time, that is going to like attract a lot more volume, probably away from C5 providers to Maple. And I think it would it's not out of the question that more C5 providers would just start running pools on Maple so that their lenders and their depositors have more trust in what's going on. And so how does raising rates uh, impact demand for crypto lending broadly, both in the short and long term? Rising, so rising rates have made it relatively less attractive for people to go into crypto yield. So what you're seeing is that the people who, the people who need to get it are either supply constrained in that they are, they don't have a ton of different TradFi options to go to, or they just have a mandate to kind of hold digital, digital assets. And so they're remaining in the ecosystem. They're holding USDC. So I'd say there was less liquidity coming in. But relative to the options available to a lot of people, you know, these might be smaller family offices. They don't necessarily have access to, you know, investment grade debt that might be paying like mid single digits. And so for them, the opportunity to participate in a pool like like on Maple, for example, still getting like high single digits is relatively attractive to them. It's not as attractive as it was when yields were, uh, you know, when TradFi yields were like close to zero and um, and DeFi had like a nine, you know, or rather on-chain lending had a, you know, 9% spread. But at the same time, this is now more battle tested. So people probably have less of a premium that's required. And so how do you go about attracting new users to Maple on both sides of the aisle, right? So yeah. how do you attract the liquidity into the pools. And I'm curious specifically from the retail side, uh, but also from the institutional Mm -hmm. side, but then how do you attract borrowers? Like how do you let miners know that this is an option available to them as an example? Yeah. 
So on the lender side, it is much more focused on the institutions. So I would say Maple doesn't have a real big retail um, component, nor have we courted that side or that customer segment. And the reason for that is that the product, which is you know institutional lending, is just much better understood by institutions. It's not necessarily something it's that's suitable for the average person. And we found, I mean, probably eighty six percent of the depositing addresses are you know over a million dollars in size. So it is definitely much probably eighty six percent. That's a very up. exact number. Did you mem- Do you know that number for a fact? We've checked. We've checked it before, and so it's uh, it's just subject to to that being. Um, kind of constant it sort of always always hovered around that amount. probably 87.241678 got to go to got to go to four decibels um so yeah so it's uh funds asset managers family offices and then you know like high net worth and ultra high net worths who are typically finding this product attractive and uh in terms of getting them to deposit or where they are courted so the pool delegates who are managing the pools will do a lot of that outreach, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be heading to events, whether it's conferences, warm intros, databases. But what we need to offer and the critical thing is, can you make it easier to get from dollars into stable coins? I think five years from now, like I already hate using banking. It's slow. It's cumbersome. The user experience is terrible. I basically use USDC for everything. And then when I have to like spend something on the credit card, then I'll just transfer to a bank account for the last mile. Uh, but otherwise, I prefer to keep most of my funds in in USDC rather than in uh, in the banking system. And so, but it's the inverse for a lot of corporate treasuries and family offices at the moment. And so, whilst that remains the case, we need to make it easier for them to get in. And so that means good on and off ramps. And um, the way you guys partner with any on off ramps uh, on your front end or no, we're working. So we're working on one. What we found is that none of them have the kind of the technology you need because they can't actually interact with a smart contract. So you get money into a wallet if you're a customer and then the wallet can't do anything. It can't interact with Maple. It can't interact with Aave. Couldn't interact with you know, Uniswap, like it's, it's these a, are really it's good on off ramps for exchanges, but they're not really meant for DeFi. Yeah. Exchanges love on F on ramps. They hate off ramps. And so for, um, if you're going on an exchange that, well, the user experience is that the withdrawal function is usually tucked away at the back. Um, but there are, you know, there are partners like, uh, you know, some of the products out there are like the banking as a service providers, whether it's prime trust, Silvergate, that you can kind of look at, uh, but they typically don't have the ability or the technical capability to interact with smart contracts. So it's not really a sort of fit for fit for use product if you want to bring somebody into using a smart protocol or a smart contract or a DeFi protocol. How do we get more users though? We also have to offer a variety of products. So you've got like short-term unsecured pools, which are like most of what the volume on Maple has been. But then you've got to offer other things like do they want longer tenor? Do they want more security, like a lower LTV? Um, do they want a different asset class? So we need to have more options for us as a platform to be able to last and grow and thrive in a crypto winter where there is less appetite to lend to your typical market makers. Um, on the borrower side, again, same thing. We got we got to offer some off ramps because if I go to a, to the treasurer of a fintech and say, hey, you should borrow you know, $10 million through Maple, 
they're going to say, well, you know, how do I get it to my bank account? And so that's where you have like a stumbling block because you can distribute USDC from the smart contract, but then they need something else if they want to take it to a bank account and either pay salaries or pay vendors. And so that's something, again, that we're working on. Uh, but increasingly, because I suppose the banking system is pricing out and, and showing less appetite to middle market and credit funds, there's just not enough supply of credit funds to satisfy that that portion of the middle market. So I think they're still pretty receptive to hearing offerings like what uh, like what Maple has. And so I think over time, we'll just take more of that market. And so what what is today easier to attract, the lenders or borrowers? Borrowers, 100% borrowers. Okay. So um, uh, just because it's, it's, it's less well understood on the lender side, and particularly at the moment, you know, there's just a probably a risk-off ap- attitude towards digital assets. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I'm assuming the borrowing demand has, you know, to your point earlier, shrunken a bit just because the volumes on exchanges are lower. But I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. we speak to a lot of the same market makers. I think you're, I mean, it's pretty public who the market makers that participate on your platform are. So I think you can yeah. probably, probably disclose them. But, you know, um, you know, they're all still trying to, you know, there's still markets to be made in this, this industry. We still, we still do have a lot of volume. So, yeah, yeah. No, there, there, there's still volume and the larger ones, like you'll see market share will consolidate among the larger ones than when there's less to go around because they already have the fixed, you know, they already have the fixed tech investment handled and they, you know, they're integrated with more markets so that they can still, still draw income from the activity. So they're going to be more resilient than some of the smaller ones. Uh, but we've still seen, you know, we've seen slightly less appetite, but still pretty healthy borrowing appetite from our main clients. You know, Winamute just the other week took down a $40 million loan on the platform, which was their largest one to date. You know, so that that was really healthy and good to see for, for growth of lending on the platform. So let's do, I know we only got a little bit of time left. I know we got a yeah. lot of questions left. So let's go speed around here. <laughs> speed uh, round. All right. Speed round. It. Why would somebody want to hold the Maple token? What are the incentives to hold the token itself? Like, why, or, or, or sorry, the, the protocol. Like, what, what is exciting about the protocol uh, and the platform? And, and being a, you know, obviously I understand the incentives to participate in Maple, but what are the incentives to hold Maple? Mm, so, the, the, it's a governance token uh, and it can be used in decision making on the platform. It can also be staked. And when you stake it, when you stake it, you had been putting it in pool cover as well. And so I've been providing some of that reserve. Uh, in V2, it's going to be reworked a bit. So you still stake it and have XMPL. And in that way, you would use that to participate in governments. And then there's the possibility that Treasury can uh, you know, can buy back the token and distribute it to the, uh, to the staked MPL holders. So it is pretty intrinsic in how it participates in the network. And you know, we've thought about ways that we can more tightly couple the role of like a delegate with, you know, holding MPL. And so what are the most important KPIs for the protocol? So, you know, in crypto, it feels like we just throw out all these metrics like TVL and XYZ and whatever, right? But that isn't necessarily the best metric for every single protocol. I mean, is TVL a a metric that people should care about as it relates to, to Maple or are there other metrics that are more important? Yeah, I think about, uh, so TVL is one thing, but let's say you had, if you had twice as much TVL, 
that was priced. So let's say, let's say you've got uh, 1 billion in TVL where the average loan rate is 10%. Well, that's worth the same in terms of generating interest and fees through the platform as 2 billion in TVL that's priced at 5%. Um, so the way I think about it is you should look at the interest that's been generated through the platform. So Maple's done over 40 million in interest payments processed through the platform. And then look at the, you know, you, you also want to look at the fees that have been generated to the protocol. So in Maple's case, that's the 67 basis points on origination volume, which goes to the treasury. Um, and in V2, we'll also have a portion of the interest that is paid by the borrower will also go through to the treasury as a kind of platform service fee for continuing to operate the um, operate the protocol. But so I, I look at TVL. I think that's very important in the lending space. And it's often calculated improperly. Like if you look at DeFi Llama, they only count cash. And you have to click an alternative view to see loans outstanding plus cash. But that's misleading because if you looked at Deutsche Bank's balance sheet and only counted the cash on the balance sheet, you'd understate their, you know, you'd understate their size by about 12x. And so on Maple, like you need to look at TVL. You also need to look at interest payments that are in process through the platform. And you also want to look at the default rate. So Maple's done over 1.7 billion in loans. It's had one $10 million default. So less than 1%. Uh, cumulative default rate on overall origination. So very healthy credit performance. If you had a really big loan book, but there was something like 10 or 20% defaults, it wouldn't be a sustainable lending business because your defaults are going to chew up all of the interest and then some. And so you're on the Fundamental Value Podcast. We ask the question every guest, <laughs> how do you define fundamentals for digital assets and how do Maple's fundamentals differ from other projects and specifically DeFi projects? Yeah. So I mean, fundamentals for digital assets. So I think you want to separate like a lot of DeFi 2.0 was really problematic because the product was effectively a token and it was all about just tying up liquidity um, around a token without actual usage of the product or protocol. So I th the way I think about fundamentals for Maple are we are trying to drive Anyone who uses the platform, we want them to be using it more, whether that's as a borrower or as a lender. So this means we would look at borrowers who repeatedly come back and take loans. We're also and and who continue to perform. So uh, we're looking. That's one side of our marketplace. We're on the other side. We're looking at like what addresses come and lend onto the platform and then upsize because it means they're enjoying the protocol, and that's like having a negative churn rate. Net, if we net can, retention if rate we, on chain. Exactly. Yeah. So we're looking at things like the net retention rate on chain. And I treat the way I try and envisage Maple is that coming like coming from a lending background, they always looked at things like originations. And lending businesses would always blow up because they would focus on originations, CFI case in point, at the expense of credit risk or profitability over a life cycle of a loan. And so how I look at it is uh, I look at it more like a SaaS business where you have the lifetime value of a borrower or a lender as a customer, and you want to maximize that and you want to minimize churn. So you ideally want negative churn on borrowers, negative churn on lenders, where they get larger over time. And so what we did was we shifted the revenue model to be more akin to like a SaaS type business, where you have a portion of the origination fee is spread over each month so that the borrower is only paying it as long as they're using the loan. Um, and where, you know, lenders will accrue interest 
from the moment they come into the pool and they'll see it tick up, you know, each block over time. So we're really focused on like, how do we delight those customers and provide more of a SaaS type product that they keep using um, for a longer period of time. So it was a bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully it kind of gets to some of the fundamentals. I, I like that, how we delight our customers. I like that. Um, so yeah. so yeah. let's go very quick, 45 seconds of question. Fast forward 24 months, how many of the top 100 cryptocurrencies by market cap will still be in the top 100? Oh, Jesus. Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, let's say I think there's probably... I think probably 24 months from now, there'll be maybe one third. And what you probably crypto- have two thirds churn. All right. All right. What in crypto has you most excited right now? Uh, I think the, uh, so I think two things. So I'm liking seeing more institutions come into the space. Um, but I'm also liking more rails and kind of picks and shovels products. So I think Fireblocks offering support for Solana DeFi was really important recently. And I think more, um, more ways for people to access uh, protocols like Maple and, you know, like DeFi uh, is super important. So I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to that. So that is like anything like a, an on-ramp, uh, you know, wallet solutions, they're supporting DeFi. What is your hottest take right now? That's my final question. Ooh, Hottest take right now. I think, well, so I don't, th- I don't think the incumbents come in from the banking sector and squash DeFi. I, I, I keep saying this consistently, but I think instead what happens is that new uh, businesses emerge that are equipped to take advantage of digital asset infrastructure, you know, interacting with the chain, and they actually grow and, uh, you know, and flip the incumbents. Um, same as you saw with like e-commerce versus big box retail timeline for that. Uh, uh, it's always longer than your short term estimate, but probably more happens faster than your longer term estimate. So let's say I'll split the middle. I'll say like five years. It's pretty fast. All right. Thank you for coming on. This was awesome. I learned a ton. I'm sure the listeners learned a ton everyone listening should reach out to you. So where are they reaching out to you? Where are they finding out more about you guys? They can, they can see Maple uh, by going to maple.finance is our core website. And they can find me uh, at Syrup Sid on Twitter. And I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, uh, Sydney Powell. And then on Twitter, we're at Maple Finance as well. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Sid. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure. Joshua, it was a pleasure.